As I mentioned, we're in the beginning of our series on the book of Colossians. So I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3 and going through verse 8. And I'm also going to read verse 13 and 14 in chapter 1. And then I'm going to read a couple of verses from chapter 4. Verses 12 and 13. So Colossians 1, Colossians chapter 4. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Colossians 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the dark, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Chapter four, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for, for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. At the end of the Apostle Paul's second, second missionary journey, he set sail from Corinth, which is in Greece, and he's returning back to Jerusalem. And on his way home, he has a layover. He has a, a pit stop. He, he moves from Corinth and he sails across the Aegean Sea, and his first layover is on the western tip of modern-day Turkey. It's called Asia Minor back then. And it's in a city called, a port city called Ephesus. And Ephesus is this uh, leading, sparkling city. And when you look out over Ephesus, you, you look out over the sort of the dark blueberry-colored Aegean Sea. And you see the Greek island sort of laid out before you. And, and I can only imagine what might have been going through the Apostle Paul's mind as he enters this port city. This, this leading city of the day, uh, home to some 400,000 400, people, lots of tradesmen filled with tourists. But, but the city was dominated by one particular feature, and that was the temple that stood at the height and the center of the city, the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. It's known as one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. And so as he stops in this port city and he pulls up to port and he looks out over the city, 
he sees this, the tourists, he sees the tradesmen, but he sees this temple one and a half times the size of a football field dominating the, the skyline. In, in the, the, the temple was made of 127 marble columns that held up this great marble roof. And each column 60 feet high. And in the center, inside the temple, was this multi-breasted female idol called Artemis. That everyone from around had come to, to worship. Outside is a large reflecting pool that makes the temple look twice the size of its normal size. And then hugging, circling the, the temple area are, are tourist shops, t-shirt shops. And prostitutes, all trying to make a sale, all trying to, to use what they have to get some money off the tourists, the religious tourists who are coming to visit this fertility goddess. Ephesus was also a, a world-class cultural city. It has a very famous amphitheater. Imagine this 2,000 years ago, this amphitheater it had perfect sound, held 25,000 people. So they'd have these great plays, these great concerts there that 25,000 people from Ephesus or the surrounding area would come and, and listen or be, in, be entertained. But spiritually, Ephesus was a dark city. It was full of magic spells, crystals, secret sayings, sexual perversion, idol worship, greed. And you get a sense of the spiritual darkness of Ephesus when you read through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter back to the church at Ephesus. And he has at the very end of his letter this pretty well-known statement to the, this final exhortation to the church at Ephesus. He says this, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, now listen with that cultural backdrop, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So that's Paul's final exhortation to the church that is at Ephesus. He understands that there's a, a spiritual darkness. There's a domain of darkness that rests over the city of Ephesus. And I can't imagine what this, this man must have felt as he pulled up to this port city. He sees that the domain doesn't just extend out over Ephesus. Ephesus, it, it surrounds the, it extends out over the suburb cities. Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Colossae. All neighboring cities that sort of ring this port city have this spiritual domain that extends over them. And so with all these forces at work in this one city, all the, the financial forces, all the spiritual forces, all the cultural forces at work, into this nexus or this intersection walks one man armed with the gospel. So you have all these powerful influences and God's saying, I'm going to send one man armed with the gospel into this city. He's a Jewish man and he steps out of his side of his 
culture into the heart of the Gentile territory. He's a Middle Eastern man, and he has to step outside of his nationality. He has to step outside of his, his ethnicity, and he has to step into this Asian context. He's a man from Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, at the city center of Jerusalem, at the highest point of Jerusalem, is also a temple. And in that temple is a seat, the mercy seat, where the God who's got a name Yahweh resides. And now he's moving away from that city and he's moving into another city who at its center has a temple. And inside that temple is a goddess, a fertility goddess, who is apparently supposed to bring life. Her name is Artemis or Diana. So just imagine, imagine you being that person coming out of that sort of cultural context and intersecting this particular city. Uh, It must have been completely overwhelming. Yet this is the pattern. This is one of the main points that last week and this week, this is the pattern of discipleship. This is the pattern of disciple-making. It's one person armed with the gospel who is surrounded by their own context, and they're willing to step out of their context, out of their ethnicity, out of their nationality, out of all their heritage, and step into a, a nexus, a center, an, an intersection of all kinds of forces at work. Somebody armed with the light of the truth of the gospel needs to step into the domain of darkness with this light, bearing the light of the gospel. And that's what Paul does. And he's on this layover. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. And while he's there, he's speaking about the gospel. And if you look at Acts chapter 18, verse 12, he says, I can't stay. I mean, I'm here just for a few days, and I appreciate you all having a hunger for the truth, but I'm on my way somewhere. This is just a layover. But as he left, he looked at this little band of people wanting to hear more of the gospel, and he says, I will come back if it's God's will. And something must have happened, I think, to the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. Somehow his, his heart got captured by these people or his heart was stirred because he saw the, that these people lived underneath, underneath this spiritual oppression. They lived under the, underneath this domain of darkness. And, and, and I just get the sense that Paul, on his way back to Jerusalem... He's, he's staying up at night. He's hearing these voices that were at the port city. Oh, please, could you just stay and tell us about, more about the gospel? And he's like, I can't. I can't stay. And he's just imagining, well, if the gospel came to this city and began to reverse the tide of the spiritual darkness, imagine it could have an influence over the, the, the suburb cities around. And so he begins this strategy thinking, how could God use him in a a way to affect this whole region, this whole area? And the reason I think that the Apostle Paul was thinking that way is because a few years later, he goes on his third and final missionary journey. And he's in Jerusalem, and the first place he stops is Ephesus. He bypasses Galatia and all the churches that he had planted there. He's just on his way to Ephesus. And when he gets there, he stays there. The longest time he stays anywhere, two years. And he's teaching them the word of God. Acts 19, Paul spoke boldly, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. 
But some of the people there were obstinate. We're not surprised by that. They refused to believe. They publicly maligned the gospel. And if you haven't read this account, you should go back today and just read chapter 18, 19. It's very fascinating what happens there in the city of Ephesus. Yet Paul continued with daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So some sort of public hall was made available because even though some people are obstinate, some people were coming towards the gospel. So Paul rents out this lecture hall or is given the lecture hall and he speaks. He went, it says he went on for two years. He's speaking every day in the lunch hour for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. So this one man comes back. He's preaching for two years. And the, the, the reverse of the spiritual darkness just begins to happen. Not just over Ephesus, but these surrounding suburb cities. During this two-year period, somewhere during this two-year period, most scholars believe that sitting in the audience is this man. He's being transformed by the teaching. He's coming to Paul's congregation. This is something he hasn't heard. He, he himself is being transformed by the power of the gospel. He's being delivered out of the domain of darkness and he's brought into the kingdom of God. And he's a man from one of these suburb cities. And his name is Epaphras. And he's from one of these suburb cities called Colossae. And so this man, Epaphras, is sitting underneath the teaching of Paul. He's being transformed by the teaching. And this transformation leads to him wanting to touch the world. Hey, I've heard this teaching. I've been transformed. I've been rescued out of darkness. I've been brought into the kingdom of God. And just the immediate um, impetus of his soul is to say, I've got to tell somebody else about this. And not surprisingly, he wants to go back to his hometown. I got my family, I got my friends. They haven't heard about this. They they live underneath this dome of darkness that's emanating out of the temple of Diana, and I need to go back to my hometown and tell my family, tell my friends about who Jesus is. So he wants to reach out and touch his world, and he goes back to his hometown named Colossae. So as we think about this man sitting under the teaching of Paul in Ephesus, and then becoming a disciple, becoming a real, genuine follower of Christ, and then moving back into his hometown, Paul gives some descriptions, some character descriptions of Ephesus as a disciple, or as of Epaphras as a disciple. And so as we look at these few verses and we think about discipleship, then I want you to make application to yourself as if you are a disciple of Christ, then are some of these character qualities things that mark you as you as you are a disciple? Or maybe there's something here that you'd say, that's God stirring this up to say, yeah, that's something that I need to personally incorporate or or work on. Chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 4, verse 12, Paul, Paul highlights this character quality he calls Epaphras, the great phrase, a beloved servant of Jesus Christ. 
So the first thing we want to know about this disciple, his character quality, he's a beloved servant of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it's agape, love, doulos, servant. Agape, doulos. That's the the packaging. That's the best delivery system for the gospel. If you want to get the gospel across and you want to bring it in a particular package, if you want to deliver it to somebody who's living in the domain of darkness, the best way to deliver it, the best way to penetrate the present darkness is to bring it in this packaging with somebody who's beloved and a servant. He's beloved. He's, He's the person who's willing to speak the truth. Yet he's able to do so in some sort of endearing, winsome manner. Epaphras seems to be the kind of person that got down what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to deliver the truth. But to do this with gentleness and respect. So Epaphras has this kind of winsome attitude. He's the kind of person that you say, oh, I'm glad he's here. I'm glad he's at our party. I'm glad he's on my team. I'm glad he's part of my family. He's beloved. He's, he's winsome. And yes, he's telling me the truth, but he's doing it in such a way that you wouldn't want to invite him in to be a part of your life. It's just like the Ethiopian, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that Philip's running alongside this chariot and the Ethiopian eunuch saying, I don't know what I'm talking, I don't know what I'm reading. And Philip says, well, hey, I've read that passage before. And what does the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch do? I would like to invite you in. You're a beloved person. You're somebody who's endearing. And would you please come in? And of course, we know all that emanates from the person of Christ. What was Jesus mostly blamed for in his life by the religious people? You're eating with, you're sitting down with who? Sinners and tax collectors. I mean, if you're like God in the flesh, if you are the truth, if you are the way, if you are the life, you would know about those people and you wouldn't be endearing to those people. And yet he is. Jesus always invited in. Always the life of the party. Always want him on our side. Always want him on our team. He comes in as a beloved kind of figure. Tim Keller says this. Love without truth is sentimentality. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us. But it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, you're, yeah, yeah. But I'm never going to tell you the truth. So I'm just affirming by my embrace of you all the wonderful things, but I'm never willing, really willing to tell you the truth. So love without truth is just sentimentality. Truth without love is harshness. If you don't have a beloved character trait and you come in and you do have the truth, then you're perceived as harsh. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. You ever known somebody like that? You really do have the truth, but your delivery system is so bad. 
It's so harsh. It's so cold that I just can't hear you because I can't, I can't, you're not embracing in any way. You're not in any way beloved. So here Epaphras puts these two character traits. He's, he's a beloved person. He has the truth. He's delivering the truth, but he's doing that with a, with an, an endearing quality to his character. Secondly, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's a beloved servant of Jesus Christ. Epaphras had abandoned the anxiety of trying to get noticed in this world. Epaphras had abandoned the anxiety of trying to get noticed in this world. He wasn't trying to get noticed anymore. He was trying to get Jesus noticed. I've moved away from trying to get myself promoted and myself known to getting Jesus known. There's a business book that recently came out. It's called Platform. It's probably a good business book. Subtitle, Getting Noticed in a Busy World. So you have a product. You're a salesperson. You're your personality, whatever it is, and you need, you need to build a platform so that you can stand on that platform and you can be noticed above all the noise, all the competition in the world. How do you do that? And this business book helps you understand how to do that. And like I said, it's probably a good business book, but for Epaphras, who's a servant, he's not focused on building a platform, but being a platform. He's just going to say, I'm going to be a platform and I'm going to hoist Jesus up on me so that when you walk away from whatever I've done, whatever way I've delivered the gospel, you're going to remember Jesus. How many of you have been to a concert? How many of you have been to a concert? You've been to some kind of concert. Yep. Do you remember what a platform that concert had? No, you probably can't even remember the platform at all. You remember the star on the stage. I saw... I saw Bruce Springsteen. I did. I saw him. I was a long way away, but I mean, I saw him. I saw Michael Jackson. I was like, awesome. I'm up there rocking it out. I don't remember anything about the stage. I remember seeing the star. And, and that's, that's what Epaphras was. He's just staging. He's trying to lift up Jesus, trying to make Jesus great. That's his whole life. He doesn't care anything about people noticing him. He's done with the anxiety of trying to get noticed in this world. And that might be the one thing somebody here needs to hear. You spend your whole life just trying to to build yourself up, build a resume. You're a high school student, you got to get a resume. You're a college senior, you got to get a resume together. You got to build yourself up so you look better than everybody else. So when you apply to the job or apply to the school, you get noticed above a busy world. Epaphras is a servant of Jesus Christ, and he spends his life trying to get Jesus noticed. He's a beloved servant. What a great description of a disciple. I love this next character combination. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 13. He's a faithful minister. He has worked hard for you. He's a faithful minister and he's worked hard for you. He's a faithful minister. He, he has reached out. He has fir- a firm grip. A faithful grip. 
an unwavering grip on the gospel. I am going to be a faithful minister of the gospel. I live in a place that has opposition. We already heard about that. I'm going to go back to a place that has opposition. Maybe it's my family. Maybe it's my friends. Maybe it's people in the town. They're not going to receive the light of the glory of God. But I'm going to be a faithful minister. No matter what they say, no matter what they do, I'm going to hold on to Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to keep proclaiming the gospel that in Jesus you come out of darkness and into the kingdom of God. I'm going to hold on to that no matter what. He's a faithful minister. And yet he's working hard. He's he's stretching out his other hand. And in that that the, the working hard that phrase in the Greek is agonize or in great pain. He's He's stretching through the great pain of the culture and he's willing to hold on to these people. And he's saying, God, I want to be like a bridge. I want, I want to be reaching into the life of my friend, of my family, of my city, of my school. I want to hold on to them firmly without ever letting go of the gospel. He wants to be that bridge that God can use to travel people across from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And do you see the way he, just, he, he lives his life? demonstrates who he lives for. The God-man who, who held on to God and would never let go, no matter what the cost, and yet in great pain, stretch out and reach to a world in darkness. He's a faithful minister. He's, he's at pain Stretching out for you. The way Epaphras lives his life is an expression of the gospel. Well, that's a little bit about who Epaphras is. Now, let's just take notice of two things that he does. Number one, he's a teacher. Chapter 1, verse 5 and through 7, you see these phrases. You have heard the word of truth. Obviously, they've heard it from Epaphras. Paul's writing this letter to Colossae. He's saying, I know Epaphras is one of you, and I know the gospel came to you through this man. You've heard the word of truth. You've heard and understood the grace of God in truth. And just as you learned it from Epaphras. So so the, the big takeaway, I mean, there's lots of things I could say here, but the big takeaway I want you to have in this particular point that Epaphras is the teacher is Epaphras spent maybe two years at the foot or in the congregation of the Apostle Paul. Let's just say the first day Paul comes, Epaphras is there. He's doing some business, whatever the case may be. He's moved to Ephesus. And maybe for two years, he sat in Christ Community Church, Ephesus. But he didn't stay there longer. I mean, he wasn't there. He didn't hear from the Apostle Paul longer than two years because then the Apostle Paul left and he went somewhere else. So maybe two years Epaphras was there hearing this teaching, having a transformed life. And then he takes the gospel and he runs alongside the people in his own hometown. He he begins to live alongside them in a beloved servant-like way. And the Apostle Paul never visited Colossae as far as we know. Yet you see, you see the, the distribution of the gospel isn't based on professional people. It's based on faithful people. 
the distribution of the gospel isn't based on some professional person. It's based on just faithful people. People who've really been transformed by God. People who really live out in the world. They live out in their school. They live out in their community. They live out in their business. And they're just willing to be faithful in those locations. I had a friend uh, one time who uh, was at a research university. He was a science professor, Ph.D. And we were talking one time, and at at that point, I was in Young Life. I was doing ministry with high school students, and I was a minister of the gospel. And in just a kind of a jovial kind of conversation, he said, Paul, you know, the guys in my science department, they wouldn't even give you a hearing. I looked at him and said, as far as I'm concerned or I can tell, I'm not called to your science department. Guess who is? You. I'm not called to your science department. I'm not asking you to go to New Hanover High School with me today. That's where I'm called. You're called because you're a Christian to live out your faith, holding on firmly in a very difficult place, a university research department of science, and reaching out, stretching out, and proclaiming the truth, and loving the people that you're around. You're called to do that, not me. You see, there's so many people that you're going to intersect with, I'm never going to intersect with. There's so many places in the city that you're going to go, I'm never going to go to those places. But you're called to your neighborhood. You're called to your school. You're called to your business. You're called to some portion of the city. And my question is, like Epaphras, will we be this kind of disciple? The, the person who's willing to live in those kinds of places and proclaim the gospel to say, I don't need a professional to do it. I'm the one who's called to do that. It might be to a whole city it might be to one person, like the Ethiopian eunuch. So he's teaching. And then finally, I love and appreciate Paul's choice of words here to describe Epaphras, chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who's one of you, he's, he's a somebody, he's a Colossian, a servant of Jesus Christ. And then listen, he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He's always struggling. He's always wrestling. He's always contending. That word usually has some sort of athletic connotation. So your version may be, he's contending on your behalf. He's wrestling on your behalf. He's struggling on your behalf. When I was in the ninth grade, in the ninth grade you could start wrestling if you wanted. They didn't have it in the eighth grade. And so I played football, and a lot of the football players wrestled, and they said, hey, Phillips, you should come out and wrestle. And I was like, I don't know, what, it, what is it? I mean, all I know is Ric Flair or something. You know, that's what I know. <laughs> Sorry if you don't know Ric Flair. Um, yeah, whoo, that was a good one. Um, so I'm thinking, well, what, it, what? I mean, I, I get the idea, but tell me about it. Well, you, 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 it's you and somebody in your weight class, and you have three different wrestling periods, they call them, and they're two minutes each. And in between the two-minute periods, you have a 30-second break. I'm thinking, good grief, how hard is this? I mean, your total time is six minutes, and you get two breaks in between. I, I can do that. I mean, anybody can do that. I played on football team, played for 40 minutes, at a, you know, in one stretch. So I can do it two minutes at a time. This is a no-brainer. 
I'd run a mile, which take me maybe 20 minutes. I could do that the whole time without stopping 20 minute miles, just speeding down the highway. And so I'm thinking three, two minute periods. But what if you know anything about it, you know, oh, man. You're exhausted at the end. I mean, you're just, I'm on the mat, you're, to, you're done. Why is that? Why, why is that in just these little two-minute segments that wrestling is so difficult? It's because every fiber, every muscle fiber is firing at its full strength the entire time. You're contending with this person. You don't know if it's going to be you going down or him going down. And I want you to imagine Epaphras on behalf of the people at Colossians. He's contending. He is, all of his muscles are completely firing. And who is he wrestling with? He's wrestling with God Almighty. He's saying, God, I want you to move on behalf of my friends, on my family. I'm going to keep holding on to you and do everything I can to get you to move somehow to rescue these people from the domain of darkness into the spiritual, into the realm of God, into light. And I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to use all of my strength to bring you before God the Father who can change your life. What a great discipleship characteristic so when he's done praying Paphras is spent he's done he's on the mat i'm i don't have any more energy i've wrestled with god for my friends for my family let's just stop and take a moment of personal evaluation First of all, are you, are you verbally thankful for people who have served as an Epaphras to you? Imagine the, the joy that Epaphras got when he takes this letter back to his hometown. And the first thing is, let's, let's think about how great Epaphras is. He's like, wow, I'm just a platform. But the Apostle Paul is affirming this person and what he's done for these people. And so somebody has been that to you. Have you verbally expressed, I'm just so thankful that you were that person. That you wrestled with God on my behalf. And the flip side of that question, who are you an Epaphras for? If you're a disciple, you're called to be an Epaphras for somebody. Maybe one person, maybe a city. But you're called to, to wrestle with God for this person. Who is that? Or have you believed the lie? That's, that's just the professional. I mean, as soon as the evangelist comes to town, I'll bring my friends. Try to get them to come to church and hear the preacher. But you don't think it's your responsibility. You think it's really somebody else's responsibility. And God's saying, no, I want you to be that person. I want you to go into life and say, I'm going to hold on to Jesus. I'm going to hold on to you. And we're going to read the Bible together. Finally, just about your, your character traits. Are you a, a beloved servant of Christ? Are, are you trying to get on the platform? Are you trying to be the platform?
Are you winsome in the way you come alongside? Are you willing to say the truth, but do it in love? Are you wrestling? Are you contending? Are you struggling with somebody, with God, for somebody else? Or is it just I'm driving around and, Lord, I'm going to help Your prayer life at the end, you wouldn't say, I'm exhausted, I'm, I'm spent. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is such a great, great saint, Epaphras. Most people don't know who he is. Gets very little time here in this book. But he's done something so significant. And his life is a witness to our lives here 2,000 years later. We know people who live in the domain of darkness. There is a spiritual darkness that is invading our own culture and community. And you've called us to begin to intersect these places where all kinds of spiritual forces are at work. And to fight, not like against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, principalities. Lord, I I pray for your disciples here. That they would take seriously the call, the commitment to be a follower of Jesus. And whatever that means for them, whatever you wanted them to hear today. Beloved servant, wrestler, contender teacher, faithful minister, stretching out at great pains for other people. Would you solidify that in every heart and every soul? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.